0: The fifth industrial revolution, Reg, needs to be about rehumanizing the human species. It needs to be about building models that recognize value rather than inputs. And it needs to be a model that gives everyone on the planet a reasonable chance that tomorrow could be better if they put their minds to it.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Reg LaScaris and welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to entrepreneurs and leaders who influence the way brands and businesses are built, as well as people who have an impact on the marketing industry. So, if someone told you that you could create a better tomorrow by understanding the future, you'd probably agree. But then who can do that? Well, today I'm chatting to Anton Musgrave, who is a futurist and a partner in Future World at International Consultancy. What do they do? They help companies create the successful businesses and brands of tomorrow. Hi, Anton, and welcome to Market Share. Good morning, Ridge. Great to be here. Anton, you went from being a lawyer who was focused on facts, I guess, <laughs> to a futurist who identifies trends, makes predictions, and makes strategies for the future. How did this happen and why?
0: <laughs> Ridge, you won't believe this, but the story started, believe it or not, in a dentist surgery waiting room. You know, I'm scared of two things in life, snakes and dentists, and I classify them both as equally dangerous. (laughs) So an impending tooth extraction had me looking for something to focus my energy on. I found a magazine that was pretty up to date, a young dentist, and I read about something called the Internet. And this was way back 1989. It was a science magazine. And I thought to myself, if this article was half true, the world would never be the same. And so as soon as the anesthetic wore off, I rushed into some of my partners in the law firm and said, how many of you have heard about this thing called the Internet? And to my shock and amazement, none had. And that really scared the daylight out of me because I thought, what else is out there that might shape the future that I was blissfully unaware of? And so a journey started to explore, uh, find who could tell me about the future. I found an advisory business um retained them to do a big project on the impact of the internet on professional services way back 1990. And that's where the journey started. They said to me, uh, we like how you think uh, you can tell a story, come and join us. And uh, I declined because I was a happy and successful lawyer. But they said, come on, we'll work with you on a part-time basis. And so a journey as a futurist started while I was still practicing law way back when.
1: (laughs) So here's a very broad question then. How do companies or brands stay relevant in a shifting and unpredictable world if you take COVID and all that? How do they stay relevant? What do you, what, what do, you do?
0: I think the, the, the big challenge for leaders in, in every single industry, and this is a global challenge, is how do they run and operate successfully what I call the business of today, which by definition is short-term focused with you know monthly, quarterly targets and so forth, but concurrently actually prepare their businesses, uh, their people, their customers, their supply chains for what's coming over the horizon. And so in your introduction, you mentioned, you know, observing trends. Uh, And and in fact, what we try and do as futurists is to identify future trends, because a, a trend, again, by definition, already exists. So that doesn't help us an awful lot when we think about the future. So the future for me is a five-year-plus time horizon. And so what are those signals that we can identify that are popping out now, loud ones and tiny ones, that collectively are giving us a hint as to what may lie over the horizon beyond two or three step changes in whether it's societal shift or technology or or politics, whatever it may be, and then create pictures. Uh, You know, some people call them scenarios about what might be possible and then to imagine what your business might be in that new future context, and so to successfully balance that short-term operational uh, focus and uh, requirement, but at the same time spend time with your team talking, exploring, uh, asking the the unanswerable questions about what might be possible, and then making strategic choices differently. And so it's that it's that beautiful paradox or creative tension between even when it comes down to practical things like budgeting. You know, many South African banks, indeed many banks around the world, we've just discovered the American military still run their technology systems on a programming platform called COBOL. Now this is many decades old and the American military are now looking for 60-year-olds plus who remember how to program in COBOL to come and help them update their systems. So the point is, Spending a lot of money, maintaining an existing system, whilst necessary in your business of today, might not be creating the platform you need to succeed in tomorrow's marketplace. And so when do you pull the plug? When do you shift? When do you change? And that's the beauty
1: of leadership. So what are some of the disruptive forces you're seeing ahead and how do they impact on company strategies?
0: I think if you look at the disruptive force that sort of unfolded in South Africa in the last few days, it's growing societal discontent with, um, I guess, if I were to put it simplistically, this thing we call capitalism. Um, you know, we know that socialism and communism have failed, Reg. Capitalism is necessary because it rewards entrepreneurship, risk-taking, business creation, employment creation, and so forth. But what it doesn't do and what it's not doing very well is giving 8.5 billion people, which will soon be, a reasonable prospect that tomorrow will be better than today. Somewhere the system needs a recalibration point uh, and how do we balance that it's a shift in society where more and more people are just hungry as we've seen and again it's not a South African phenomenon you know I, I put a, a a picture together recently of scenes emerging from Cuba to New York and and Europe and so forth and it's a growing global challenge I think so societal need to feel more equitably involved in the system we call business, I think is a massive trend around the world at the moment. And I suspect that capitalism is not quite fit for purpose anymore.
1: Well, funny you should say that. I was chatting to a friend of mine in Turkey today, and he's saying what's happened in South Africa recently, the same thing is going to happen in Turkey, he predicts, in about two years' time, yeah, for very similar reasons. Anyway. Just going back to business. (laughs) So
0: so that's one area. And and I guess it ties into the second one is, you know, um, uh, the disruptors are uh, who the customers of the future. In the next 10 years, 3 billion new customers join the marketplace. And they don't think like you and I do. They don't value brands the way you and I do. They don't have the same expectations. Uh, Again, let's keep it simple. Let's just call these people our kids. Uh, and think about the strange things that your kids do, the scary or the exciting things that your kids do at home every evening or every afternoon, and then ask yourself, what does that mean for the future of my company and my value proposition and my model? And you'll get an insight into another big disruption, I think, that's coming, and that's a very, very different customer base out there in the market.
1: Steve Jobs and Elon Musk seem to have relied more on gut instinct more than statistical information or trends. In fact, Steve Jobs said, i just quote what he said, he said, our job is to figure out what the consumer wants before they do. Absolutely. And even Henry Ford said, "If I'd asked customers what they wanted, <laughs> they would have told me a faster horse."
0: Absolutely. But that's exactly the point, right? And and but don't underestimate the power of the gut ridge. It's just, it's the it's the biome that regulates our life. There are many many nerve endings there, and when these nerve endings connect uh, because of signals they're detecting. They deliver a, a, a response or, or, or a sense about what might be right or wrong. The question for leaders is, how do you calibrate your personal radar screen of awareness? What are you reading? What are, what are the data points you're taking? And the beauty about the future is there's no research about it, right? Um, is it hasn't happened yet. So again, I would urge leaders to spend in their business of today, talk about trends. But when it comes to business of tomorrow, look at signals. And look at the patterns that are emerging. And, you know, there are many domains of pattern. You can look at the capital markets, how they're shifting. You can look at patent registrations. You can even, the chief scientist of IBM, once a month, goes to speak to PhD students at university campuses to see what questions are these smart young people asking and what can he gather about the future from that? What's the inference he can make? And so, uh, you know, we look at technologies. Um, we all know, you know, Internet of Things, uh, the insertion of smart data-transmitting sensors in every inanimate object and soon inside all animate objects. So I'm looking forward to the day when I have a sensor in my liver that tells me about what happened last night and what it means for the next week of recovery <laughs> and, other, and other important parts of my body, right? Um, and so, you know, th- these are trends, but what does it mean for us five or ten years from now? It means a very, very smart world where systems are optimized, where record keeping is not done in ledgers and COBOL programs anymore. It's all done on you know, digital platforms like blockchain-enabled um, ecosystems uh, and so forth. And so we begin to get a sense that, yes, the technology is cool and exciting, but it means in a future context that quality becomes a commodity, speed becomes commoditized completely, and if you're not really on top of your data game, you're going to be irrelevant. I would go so far as to say that companies that are still in 2021 talking about digital transformation starting soon in their business, you should sell their say, short very quickly. Because already, for the most part in the world, we operate as digital enterprises. Um, there's no analog business left, really, uh, you know, not even your corner grocer, uh, not even the tomato seller you know, in a rural village today is completely analogue. Why not? Because they can check an app and see what the market prices of tomatoes are. So that when the guy drives past in his donkey cart to buy his tomatoes to resell in town, the farmer
1: now knows what the going rate is. So that begs the question, does market research matter anymore? Because market research or any research one does currently is historic anyway. So- Absolutely. Should I be doing market research or should I be scenario planning and thinking completely differently?
0: Well, again, uh, Reg, it's, it's that creative tension, the paradox between what you need to do to operate the business of today and how do you prepare your business for the business of tomorrow? I mean, another classic is, uh, you know, and it sits right alongside market research, is the 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 I call it the dreaded SWOT analysis. Mm. It's an insanely irrelevant tool when it comes to preparing you for the future. Because if you take Jack Ma, Jack Ma created many years ago a thing called Singles Day on the 11th of November, uh, where he said, you know, on Valentine's Day, people in romances buy themselves gifts. What about all the lonely people? And he said, yes, The, the gut feel was that despite a world of social connectedness, they're more lonely people than ever. So he said, okay, lonely people, here's an idea. On the 11th of November, which is, by the way, all the singles, all the one, 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 ones, go and buy yourself a gift. And I will create an e-commerce platform that will even tell you or suggest to you, using AI and all the technology toys, what gift you might want to buy for yourself. But then he realized that to execute this, he needed literally hundreds of thousands of SMEs across Asia to help him fulfill the orders that he was going to generate. None of them were digitized. None of them were online. None of them had e-commerce capabilities. Now, that's what the SWOT told him. He would have killed the concept had he listened to the SWOT analysis research, but he didn't. He was driven by an ambition and a dream to create something that didn't exist, that was so powerful. He was so excited by the potential of this idea that none of the market research or SWOT analysis data could stop him. What did he do? He went and digitized 650,000 SMEs across Asia. Why? In order to create the ability to achieve his dream.
1: Wow. So so how should leaders think about the customs of the future then?
0: So imagine who they might be, what their needs may be, how will they be living, what will the issues and the problems be they'll be facing, and then try and resolve those. But again, if you're fueled by the resource constraint mentality that we have in our current positions in our current businesses, then many of the options or choices you may want to make are off the table. So. Uh, If you think about the uh, Aravind Eye Clinic in India, started by a 75-year-old eye surgeon. Very, very limited resources out of a rural eye clinic. His ambition? To make sure that no one in India again became blind unnecessarily. The solution? Find a way of doing cataract surgery at a tenth of the EU cost at the same level of medical efficacy as an EU clinic. He did it. How come? The dream was so powerful that he overcame all the short-term financial and very other practical restraints. What started happening? Surgeons in New York that had Indian families said, wow, that's an incredible dream. I'm going back home to help this guy sort out the problem. And so magic happened. And I think, Reggie, I'm speaking for a long time, but if I come back to SA again, one of the imperatives now for leaders in this time of huge uncertainty is to articulate very clear simple but very powerful ambitions for their business their customers their staff and their communities uh, and be very clear about what it is they're trying to create in the future um, articulate it communicate it, share it talk about it and use that as a rallying force to align everyone you know in this fractured society we live in and a test, you know, <laughs> I'm known for, for challenging CEOs when I say to them, tell me what your purpose is. And then they spout forth the normal corporate happy speak that they use, you know, and then I say, right, tell me how many people in the audience got goosebumps when they heard your statement. And then they kind of look a bit sheepish. And unless your ambition, your dream, your sense of purpose for the future elicits goosebump reactions, start again.
1: So you, we need more leaders who can dream more leaders who can project the future, more leaders who can create hope then. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Especially in our context here, we need leaders that can create hope for the future and get people on their side and buy into what they're doing. Precisely. Um, Because that's a strange paradox of running a business in today's very complicated world, which it is, versus preparing for the future.
0: Well, I mean, if you look at the capital markets, I mean, let's get analytical for a second. Uh, The capital markets, the World Stock Exchanges, 30, 40 years ago, the average tenure of an S&P 500 company was about 35 or 40 years. Uh, By 2023, the average tenure will drop to 12 years. Wow! That tells you that by doing, as Nokia did, everything right, you still get to lose. Why? Because you focused on such short-term imperatives that you lose sight of what's coming around the corner and aren't prepared for it.
1: So what's the single biggest hurdle one has to overcome to prepare businesses for the future? I think
0: it's attitude. Uh, I think it is, uh, I mean, at at a sort of a more philosophical uh, level, perhaps. It's probably the seniority ridge of leaders in most large organizations and many small and family businesses too, for that matter. So anyone approaching the kind of traditional retirement age, which, by the way, is another fallacy, tends to think, let me not rock the boat too much. So we need courageous leaders prepared to uh, strive for big ambition, uh, ambitious targets. And with that comes a level of vulnerability that they need to acknowledge sometimes that they don't know the answer and they may be wrong. And I see so few corporate leaders actually prepared to be that courageous as they approach their retirement date before fear of rocking the boat and making a mistake and compromising their share options. And with that comes this unwillingness to be vulnerable. So that to me at, a, at that level is, is one of the big factors. But then it gets really practical. You know, when you, even if you have this longer term ambition, so many companies delegate that to their line, the line executives, the guys that are running the operations in the business of today. And they say, look, we still need you to make last year plus 23% turnover growth. However, please go and create this uh, crazy business that might cannibalize your existing uh, product set or your existing business model. So that's the first mistake, that very often the new idea for the future might threaten an existing one. And when you give it to the same guy to run, guess what happens? Auxiliary to that is his bonus is all dependent on achieving
1: the short-term sales targets. So that's got to change as well then. You must be given wiggle room. You must be given budgets to experiment with. You must be given resources to to prepare for the future, surely.
0: Absolutely. And in many cases, we actually advocate that you assign the creation of the business of tomorrow, new businesses, the business models, et cetera, sometimes to someone that's not responsible for running business of today operations because they need different methodologies, different approaches, different processes, actually.
1: So it goes down to with the business I've been in most of my life, creativity. It's all about creativity. Yes. Because thinking ahead, dreaming is a creative process.
0: Absolutely correct. And I listened to a French philosopher. He said, a CEO said to him one day, you know, uh, Jean-Pierre, whatever his name was, he was a French philosopher. The CEO said, you keep on telling us to think out of the box, but what are these boxes? And he was a bit stunned. <laughs> <sponge. laughs>
1: yeah. And should there be boxes? There shouldn't be
0: boxes. Well his his answer was interesting. He said there are always boxes because thought is is actually always around a set of assumptions. Those assumptions are the corners of a box, you know, it might not be square but uh, or, or rectangular. But he said that, that his view was change the way you think change the boxes that you think you know um and that's the interesting thing about the future and that's what I love about what I do is we're constantly trying to ask new questions. About things that executives would never normally debate in a boardroom. And that is eye opening for me.
1: Wow. Let's just talk about you, Anton, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> what are you most scared of?
0: I think I am most scared of humans underplaying the importance to rehumanize business. Why I say that is, you know, we're all excited now and captured by this fourth industrial revolution with robots and artificial intelligence and Mars and all the rest of the exciting stuff. And it is. And it's going to create massive opportunities for us. Uh, Yes, threats and and joblessness in its wake as well. But the fifth industrial revolution, Reg, needs to be about rehumanizing the human species. It needs to be about building models that recognize value rather than inputs. And it needs to be a model that gives everyone on the planet a reasonable chance that tomorrow could be better if they put their minds to it. I mean, think of this unemployment in South Africa rampant healthcare costs going through the roof. It's a global phenomenon, right? Mm. But there's no economic model to value the student that helps an aged person cross a busy intersection safely and avoid medical cost to the state. Crazy. It's really valuable, right? But the current model of business doesn't recognize that. Now, in a more uh, human-focused system, and I'm talking systems theory here, surely the world can say, you know, there's a real economic saving to avoiding healthcare cost of injuring a person. How do we reward that in a way that gives them the ability to buy some food for their kids or put a roof over their family's heads?
1: You're awarding human values, which makes so much sense because you try and create cultures in your company and hopefully you can infuse that with some real humanity from now on.
0: Absolutely. But but it's it's not just about sort of warm, fuzzy, let's go and hug a tree together kind of thinking. You know, in Holland there's there's an experiment running where students are given free university education, provided they live in a facility for old people and read to them for an hour or two a day. The logic is that old people actually become healthier. They become less of a medical burden on the state. The net present value of that health saving is greater than the cost of tertiary education. That's fascinating. So we need to think as a species, how do we let the machines and the robots do all the fancy stuff they can do, by the way, way better than us? Let them do it. But then how do we reimagine life, business, society, communities, So that humans can do what they are uniquely, at least for the next 30 or so years, still able to do that machines can't. Think about, you know, love, romance, serendipity, creativity, uh, humor, all of these things that humans can do that machines can't, not yet at least. How do we create systems that appreciate value and make that a relevant part of life's journey?
1: Wow, that, that's fantastic. So, so, Anton, going back to you, what do you do for fun, just to change the subject? <laughs> well, now, this is going to be a long
0: conversation because I, I seriously believe in having a, a great deal of fun. So, one of my passions is scuba diving and underwater photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love uh, wildlife, nature, and streetscape photography. I'm a keen yachtsman. Um, in the days when I was young and fit, and that's decades ago, I, I sailed for South Africa uh, in the World Champs. Right. So now I sail with friends in a bottle of Sommie of Blanc Ridge, which you will recognize as being... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just getting out in and enjoying nature in the world, really. Oh, that's fantastic.
1: So I, I, I guess in conclusion, because I'm going to have to wrap this up, I go back a long, long time to what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Absolutely correct. Thank you very much, Anton. And cheers, everybody.